0: Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday Morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical, and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California.
1: And I'm Brendan Steidl, your other co-host and communication specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows.
0: We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions.
1: Polylog is our attempt to find praise and demand constructive political dialogue.
0: Today is Sunday, November 22nd, 2020.
1: 2020, still 2020. I think
0: we have, what, just like five or six more Sundays left in yes, 2020. Yes,
1: yes. Very exciting. And today we will be talking about two topics of national importance. Number one. Trump's continued refusal to concede to Joe Biden, President-elect Biden, or even just allow the transition to begin. And number two, Naomi. Second part, we're going to talk about
0: the COVID vaccine. There's two that have been approved with promising results, um, and it looks like they'll be doing vaccinations before the end of the year. So well, well
1: t- they haven't quite been approved yet. They have They're- been. They've been completed.
0: There, we're in like the 60 day period before the FDA can approve it. And yes. then when it's approved, then well, anyway, we're on that timeline is what I'm saying. And yes. it looks like there'll most most likely be some vaccinations before the end of the year. But there's still a lot of questions. COVID is surging everywhere and people have lots to discuss.
1: But as always, highlight low light, starting high, going low. How about that? Starting high, going low today. What's your highlight this week, Naomi?
0: So my highlight is something that we saw in the interview on State of the Union. Jake Tapper interviewed Montif Slaoui, and he is kind of the vaccine czar during this Operation Warp Speed. And my highlight specifically is the question that Jake Tapper brings up to Dr. Slaoui.
2: Can children be vaccinated with either the Moderna or Pfizer vaccines? And if not, when will there be something to protect kids?
3: Yeah, so at this stage, the lowest age uh, to which the vaccines have been given is the Pfizer vaccine was 14, 12 to 14 years of age. I don't know whether the FDA will approve the vaccine for use down to that age. Maybe they will stop at 18 years of age and above. We are planning to run clinical trials into younger adolescents, then toddlers, and then infants on a, you know expedited basis over the last few months. I would expect that we can start immunizing them somewhere in the second quarter of this year, at least the toddlers. Probably the infants is going to take longer, maybe towards the end of the year.
2: But March, April, May, you think there'll be, some, there'll be some sort of something for kids?
3: Yeah. As of May, you know, toddlers, uh, you know, four or five years old, maybe even down to 12 months old. So, but we need to run those clinical trials, you know, on an expedited basis.
0: So just kudos to Jake Tapper for asking about children specifically. We've noticed this before. Jake often is asking or at least making comments about how his kid is not in school. I don't think he's handling the working from home and his kids are home (laughs) situation. But there's not a lot of male journalists, not a lot of male hosts who ask about schools, ask about education, ask about childcare, ask about safety of, you know, the COVID crisis among, among kids specifically. And I don't know. There's a lot of dads who are also journalists. You would think this would be relevant to them. And so I just...
1: Well, and he's the only of the Sunday show hosts who seems to care. Yeah. To ask any of Even these questions. Even remotely, a yes. little bit.
0: So it's just really frustrating. I mean, my Twitter is full of female journalists, and specifically journalists who cover a lot on women in the workforce, or motherhood, or just female journalists. And so I see this a lot. But then when I I see this a lot in my feed, but whenever I'm kind of like outside of my very female journalist focused <laughs> Twitter feed, it's just like the conversation around childcare and schools disappears. So kudos, kudos to Jake Tapper for bringing this up
1: directly. And, you know, you mentioned this. I remember when he was speaking, I think, with Fauci or, or one of the people in the task force asking, why in the world isn't it that kids can't get tested before they go to school right. like once a week, like all the kids? And they were like, you oh, were
0: like the White House gets tested all the time. Yes. Why so they c- could work. Why can't our kids?
1: Exactly. Exactly.
2: I don't think anybody expects that we're all going to be given the same health benefits as the president of the United States, the commander in chief, of course, but I do think if we are trying to get our economies open, we're trying to reopen schools. Let's just take schools as an example. If, for example, I have two children. If my two children went back to school in September and every student, every teacher, every person who worked at that school were tested before they could go in, and then the ones who tested positive would be isolated, and then a test like that happened, I don't know, every month, I would feel a a lot more secure about sending my kids to school if there was that kind of aggressive testing Mm -hmm. for that school. Now, I'm not saying every American should be tested every morning, of course not, but every health official I've talked to, including you, says there needs to be more aggressive surveillance testing. When are we going to get up to the level where people can have some peace of mind about, I know I can go back to work because we tested everybody before we went back to work and we isolated people and we do this every month now, or something like that. When are we going to be able to do widespread, broad-based surveillance testing and contact tracing for every American?
1: And just by the way, that clip of Tapper asking about when we're going to have broad-based testing, that was a question asked in May. And as you mentioned to me, Naomi, you just saw that the UK is planning to do exactly that, finally, for all UK residents. I mean, that's
0: their goal. Yeah. On Face the Nation, Liz Palmer talks about how the UK's testing ambition is that all UK residents are tested every week.
1: Incredible. And definitely a goal worth Reaching striving
0: for. for yeah, yeah, totally. Brendan, what's your highlight that you noticed?
1: So my highlight this week is the data download from Meet the Press. And in this data download, they look back at the series of special segments that they did throughout this election, where they zoomed in on a county by county basis to five key counties across the country. And here's their kind of look back on what they learned.
4: Data download time and a final look at our county to county project. Each piece told the story of a different trends that would help determine the 2020 election. And I think we learned a lot. First up, Beaver County near Pittsburgh, representing Mr. Trump's base. He won the county big in 2016, but he won it big again, but he did lose a point from four years ago. And it was those narrow margins that did matter in Pennsylvania. Let's go to Milwaukee County. Could Mr. Biden increase black voter turnout to flip the state back to blue? The answer, yes. He improved on Hillary Clinton and, more importantly, won the state. He netted his 20,000 votes just out of Milwaukee.
1: So we just absolutely love it every time there is any sort of reflection, lessons learned, look back on any of these programs. So seeing this, seeing them kind of like examine and kind of like bring in all the data and find out, you know, what did we learn, what ended up actually happening here? It's just so, so meaningful to me. And I just wanna have a little aside here. So back way, 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 way back when, when I was in college, I took this class, which was called the philosophy of art. And in this class, it was actually a fantastic class. And it was the first time our professor was teaching on our campus. And that professor ultimately ended up being super popular. And it was really hard to get a class with him after that. In the beginning of the class, he asked everybody to write down what their definition was of art. What makes art? What is art? And so we wrote down this definition. And I, you know, everyone tried and you wrote what you thought was meaningful. So then he promised us that at the end of that class, we would look back at our definitions and try to, uh, you know, see how right we were, how wrong we were, how we might revise it. Well, we went through that whole class. The class was great and yet, we never, ever looked back at those definitions. And I was like, no, you promised. Like, this was the whole point. This was the, you know, little time capsule moment. And I just, I love looking back at things and <laughs> making little notes to myself in the future. And you do
0: a lot of documentation to refer back. Yes, I can attest to this.
1: I remember one time, now I'm just going to just keep I'm talking just endlessly. One time when I, you know, I went to college in Washington DC, the Millennium Stage at the Kennedy Center, free performances every single day on the Millennium Stage at the Kennedy Center from now until forever. Anyway, I saw this group of these children performers who were just exquisite i don't know if they were on the piano they were they were on all sorts of things they were just amazing
0: (laughs) just little kid performers yeah
1: just amazing classical artists and i wrote a note to myself i was like i bet in 20 years these are going to be the top performers in the world (laughs) and i'm lucky enough to see them for free as children on this stage (laughs) and so i made a calendar note for 20 years in the future (laughs) with a list of their names so you have like, one what, day, twelve
0: years to go.
1: One day, I'm going to get that notice, and I'm going to look them up, and we're going to see. You're, I bet they are.
0: You're so dramatic. <laughs> I don't do any of those things, but.
1: <laughs> so I'm glad it didn't take Chuck Todd twenty years <laughs> to look back at this county segment because that would be twenty forty. That's just too far, too far. But Naomi, what is your low light? Let's let's get this more serious.
0: I got low lights. Don't worry. So my Lola light is something that I heard on Face the Nation, and it was a request from Margaret Brennan, a good-hearted one, I guess I would
5: say, as we approach this holiday season. With millions of Americans out of work this Thanksgiving because of COVID and their government benefits soon expiring at the end of the year, you should consider donating, perhaps, to an organization helping those in need. For information on where you could contribute, go to facethenation.com. Remember... We're all in this together. Okay,
0: yes, you be a good neighbor, care about your community. If there's someone down the block who doesn't have anyone coming over Thanksgiving, bring them a plate, yes. Do those things. If you have the financial means and you want to donate, do that too. If you plan on shopping, shop at a small business. Do all of those things, of course. But what that energy and that frustration that we have so many millions of Americans out of work because of this pandemic. And this pandemic is nowhere near under control. Rage and anger is a completely valid response and, and sentiment to feel. And the action is to contact your congressional representatives and tell them to actually do something. And
1: particularly your senators.
0: Yeah. Yeah especially if you live in a state where you have Republican senators. It's just, I I understand like the desire to like, hey, look out for each other this holiday season, but we should have a safety net that protects these millions of Americans who are out of work. We should be demanding The next round was stimulus relief for these out-of-work families. Like, there are things that we can do. There are things that Americans deserve to have that our federal government is not providing. And (laughs) instead of giving, like, $20 to an aid organization and maybe, you know, that's a reach for you, like, send a bunch of letters to your representatives. Like, it's just, it just really drives me crazy that we, like, lean on, like, GoFundMe to protect each other and take care of each other when what we really need is a federal safety net and social net that we don't have.
1: It's just crazy coming from her that like there's not talk about the role of government in this process.
0: And the lack of action that we've yeah. seen. Brennan, what's your low light?
1: So my low light is tone and diction from someone named Jake Tapper on State of the Union. Take a listen to the way he introduced John Bolton, former National Security Advisor to President Trump for a conversation they had today.
2: Welcome back to State of the Union. President Trump continuing to threaten democracy and national security for his brittle spirit, perhaps in part because the vast majority of his cabinet and inner circle continue to remain silent or coddle him. Joining me now, President Trump's former National Security Advisor, John Bolton, author of The Room Where It Happened. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, thanks for joining us. So
1: my question is, Is that necessary? And the answer is no, it is not necessary. It is not necessary to characterize the situation the way that Jake Tapper does with the words that he does. To say that President Trump is doing these things for his brittle spirit. To say that his inner circle is coddling him. These sorts of florid terms, frankly, are not appropriate in a journalistic space. And it drives me absolutely crazy because using these words basically telegraphs to everybody who is watching your program exactly who you have it out for, who you disagree with, who you think you're not going to give like, a fair chance or listen fairly to their arguments or their positions or their concerns. It is completely useless to be using language like that not only is it useless it it makes your arguments so 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 much less effective and not not even that like tapper is making arguments but like what he is trying to do his his job of trying to present the story as it is it's just like it's such a turnoff to so many people and it's one of these things that really gets under my skin particularly when I when I see it basically anywhere. I mean, even if it's something that I agree with personally, even if it reflects my personal politics, I just know how ineffective it is, how it like grates on people, how it makes people shut down. And if the purpose of political dialogue is to have a conversation, to exchange ideas, then words like that do not serve that purpose at all. Words like that, are are meant to hurt people, are meant to like demean people, are meant to, you know, poke your eye at people and show how how wrong they are and how right you are. It's just it's just so, so frustrating. One of the places that I see it all the time is on the Slate Political Gab Fest. Now Ooh. this is this is a podcast that Slate puts out. I'm surprised you're bringing this up. Okay. That John Dickerson is one of the three regular co-hosts of the other co-host is emily Bazelon, from she's a
0: she's a lawyer and, and teaches the, some law courses and works at yale
1: and she writes frequently right. f- for for the new york times magazine and the other co-host is david Plotz, a former editor of slate and Plots kind of serves often that kind of more host sort of role of introducing everyone and introducing a lot of the topics and asking a lot of the questions. And of course, as Sunday show, you know, junkies, we, we really like listening because we appreciate hearing from John Dickerson in any way, shape, or form that we can. Emily Bazelon often has incredible profiles. She writes of political actors and is very, very insightful. And David Plotts certainly knows a ton about politics and has some really insightful points that he makes. However, his introductions and his questions are just dripping with this type of language.
6: But mostly the president came out clearly intent on showing himself to be less of a bullying, interrupting, uh, hyper manic monster than he was last time. John, you have spent... A lot of time thinking about debates watching debates analyzing debates and you were of course doing that with last night's debate what was the most important thing that came out of last night's debate if anything
1: well it depends what uh category you want to um if you believe that debates are changed only debates only matter and change things when there's a huge gaffe or a huge mess up like the president's behavior in the first one then it Then the most important thing is that the the race will continue along the lines that it did before without much interruption. I think not only is it like ineffective in turning off a lot of other people from other parts of the spectrum, but it also really, I think, makes his journalists uncomfortable. I mean, there are some questions that he will ask that Emily Bazelon will just say, I'm not answering that or I can't answer that. Like, I'm trying to be objective and I cannot I cannot tell you that. I cannot, like, really respond to that. It's just, it, it just feels sometimes hyper... She, does, she also feels, calls
0: him out on his shit, too, yeah, sometimes. Yeah, it's, it's not feels, that she always stays quiet.
1: It feels hyper-partisan in a way that the conversation doesn't have to be to be effective. And it's 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 painful to see it happening on State of the Union. Because overall, I think Jake Tapper this year has... Sat forwards in his chair and really taken this virus and this situation very, very seriously. He's gotten rid of his state of the cartoonian, and he's had a lot of really powerful interviews. But I do think he's leaning pretty hard into this direction.
0: Jake Tapper has taken this virus very seriously and has done a lot of changes to his show to reflect this severity of of the virus and how he thinks his show, the role of his show in terms of covering and understanding the virus and the response. But I would say, I I would disagree and say that Jake Tapper often uses florid language to the point where it's inappropriate. And if you are conservative, passionately conservative, it also turns you off. I don't think this is something new that jake tapper does i think it's like a dial and sometimes he does it a lot and sometimes he does it a little but it's like something he does often
1: i agree that this language has always sort of been there hidden but it is really coming out here especially okay. in like an introduction to a guest like this this isn't like his closing aside that he does this is this is in the in the regular stream the mainstream i guess you could say <laughs> of the show
0: so that takes us to our first segment, which is, again, looking at the non-concession of President Donald Trump. It's been two weeks since it's been clear that Joe Biden won the election and is now president-elect, and there's been no concession from Donald Trump, and legal challenges after legal challenges have been presented in various courts across the different swing states. I think it's like one in 19, like Donald Trump won one and has lost like 19 challenges or something.
1: Oh, I thought it was like 20 something that he's lost already, you know, like oh, 23. Maybe. I think they've had like 31 or 32 lawsuits at this point. Yeah. And I think they've only won two or three.
0: Yeah. So courts are tolerating this less and less, but there doesn't seem to be an end in sight. There doesn't seem to be any sort of official working with the Biden transition team. And we're trying to all... Tr- figure out what does this mean for Biden's first few months and what can we expect from the Trump administration and what can Republicans do? So there was lots of voices kind of exploring this. First one we want to discuss is Kate Bedingfield. She was on the Biden campaign and now she's on the Biden transition team. She was on Fox News Sunday talking to Chris Wallace. Chris Wallace has an interesting question inquiring why the Biden team has not been kind of fighting this intensely in the courts.
7: I think what we've seen over the course of the last few weeks are These lawsuits, these lawsuits from the Trump campaign and their allies have been laughed out of court after court all across the country. They are getting absolutely no traction. We've seen the Republican governor and Republican secretary of state in Georgia this week reaffirm the the recount results there, reaffirm the outcome uh, that Joe Biden won uh, the state of Georgia. Uh, Look, Joe Biden won this election by 80 million votes. He won 306 electoral college votes, which is the uh, the same outcome Um, from 2016 that Donald Trump called a landslide when he won 306 electoral college votes. So, no, we have absolutely no concern that this is going to have any uh, outcome on, on the election itself. On your question about the transition and suing the GSA, I would say, look. You know, litigation is not a panacea. It is not going to uh, to suddenly move things forward. What will move things forward is the GSA administrator signing the piece of paper. You know, the statute says that it is her obligation to ascertain the apparent winner of the election. I don't think there's anybody in the world who would suggest, except maybe the folks around Donald Trump, that Joe Biden was not the apparent winner of this election. Again, he won 306 electoral college votes and 80 million votes from Americans all across the country. So she should ascertain the results of the election so that we can move forward with a seamless transition.
1: So this was an important question and an important answer to hear because we have been hearing people saying, well, why isn't the Biden team fighting this more? Why isn't the Biden team pushing and suing the GSA? And why aren't the Democrats on the Hill pushing this harder? And you know, Biden, as we've mentioned in previous episodes, is trying to be cool as a cucumber on all this stuff, right? Everything's fine. Everything's fine. It's all okay. And uh, here we hear this answer from Kate Bedingfield explaining how, well, suing isn't necessarily going to get us the result that we want. And there has been talk about how Literally on Monday, tomorrow, the time that you are listening to this, it's expected that enough states will have certified the election results that Joe Biden will have received 270 certified electoral votes and that that will kind of break the dam and make it so that the GSA will sign that letter and therefore the transition can truly begin. And it's important to know what that means. What it means is money is provided for the transition team. What it means is that members of the transition team can have official conversations with the COVID task force, Operation Warp Speed. What it also means is that they can begin background checks on Joe Biden's nominees, which he is going to name on Tuesday. So I think they are really hoping that this week is the week that things are able to start moving forwards.
0: And I think there's a whole dynamic within the Biden team to kind of very carefully pick and choose their fights, right? In the same way that... Presidential administrations have to consider how to use their political capital, meaning what is going to be their high ticket, their ambitious legislative goals, and really going for that and and kind of saving that political capital to get that accomplished. I think the Biden team is doing that as well in terms of, I don't know, like hostility and resentment and figuring out which fights are worth having with Senate Republicans specifically. And so... I think it's a very strategical decision for the Biden team to not fight things that the Trump is gonna lose on their own anyway. One component of this that I hadn't been thinking about too much, and it's kind of obvious and it's kind of surprised me I haven't been thinking about it, but it's the role of Trump's base and how they hold on to that resentment or frustration, depending on how some of these Biden-Trump legal fights go or Republican-Biden fights go more broadly. This came up on This Week in the panel. Sarah Isger was on. She's a staff writer for The Dispatch. And she was talking to George Stephanopoulos about the current rumors of what Trump's actions might be these next few years.
7: But why we're not seeing these other senators, I think, is because they don't have a plan. They never did have a plan for what the trigger would be for them to be able to come out and say, this is the end. And the problem is they're getting a lot of pressure from folks who say, no, this is actually just the political vengeance of being able, you know, to get them back for Russia or for impeachment. But this is totally a different situation. And they're in a rock and a hard place. I don't think they have a plan. And so they're just going to be this trickle one by one where they're going to have to figure out why today is different than yesterday.
8: Hey, Karen Finney, I'm not sure the president has a plan either, but there may be the inklings of an endgame uh, going forward as well. We've heard some rumblings that he's planning uh, to never concede to announce for president in 2024 and have a significant portion of his base always believe that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president.
1: Yeah, I think Sarah Isker really puts her finger on the situation here in that Yeah, there probably isn't a plan. And these senators are in a difficult position. Trump has put them in a difficult position. They keep waiting, hoping that somehow the dam will break or they'll get a signal that it's okay to step out and say what is, you know, so insanely obvious at this point that Biden will be the president in January. But at the same time, George Stephanopoulos is pointing out the obvious, which is that Trump is dragging a bunch of his followers and voters into this realm where they refuse to believe the legitimacy of Biden's presidency.
0: Yes, all just kind of very interesting angles in terms of how they interact with each other. It was on my mind that Republican senators are not going to want to cooperate too much with the Biden administration. It was on my mind that Trump doesn't really want to go anywhere and he wants to maintain control or, and or influence in the GOP. It was on my mind that There's a lot of activated Trump voters, Trump fans, and they're not going anywhere. But it kind of, I hadn't quite put it together that all three of those components are linked and play off of each other and influence each other. And so it's just kind of a very interesting conundrum, I think, for the Republican parties and for the Biden administration to figure out how they best kind of leverage and and move forward their own agenda.
1: Well, and one thing that comes to mind in this conversation is that It seems that Donald Trump is the obvious, you know, will be the obvious next presidential nominee if he chooses to run in 2024, having been a sitting president and extremely popular with his base. However, one thing that occurs to me and that I probably should have thought of earlier is that historically a party would not want to run the same nominee against the same person if they have lost as handily as Donald Trump lost this last election. You know, it's like, why would, you, why would you try the same thing on the electorate?
0: Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I think the party's going to have to really figure out what Trump's role is in it. But Trump has a lot of fans who are fans of him specifically, not of the party. And so that there's going to have to be a lot of a real reckoning.
1: So one of the senators, one of the Republicans that we were talking about was actually on Meet the Press, who had to walk that fine line and try to... V- circumnavigate this difficult position that Donald Trump has put them in, of course, they could always step forwards and say truthfully what the reality is and speak honestly about how breathtakingly different it is to have a president refusing to concede at this point with the numbers that exist in this election. Nonetheless, here is what Republican Senator Kramer said on Meet the Press. And this was just an outstanding question that Chuck Todd asked related to what you do with these constituents who believe the president. Does it concern you
4: that um, so many and I'm sure and I'm curious what happens when you have your own constituents that say to you, Senator, I know this was stolen. I just don't believe it. Um, What are you going to what is it going to take to these to, to tell those folks, your constituents in North Dakota? Look, I know you don't like the results, but it was fair and square. Yeah, that's a great
8: point. That's a great point. That's where leadership really does have to step in and where you have to both be attentive to them and, and then use your circle of influence. And I think what it's going to take, Chuck, is for all of these legal avenues to be exhausted. Um, and then at, at some point, we start preparing for another election. Uh, there's you, your, your monologue illustrated a couple of times in our history when there have been challenges. And uh, the good news is that our, our republic is very resilient.
4: You do realize that, that in this century, there have been four closer presidential elections, 2000, 2004, 2012, 2016. Believe it or not, the, the popular vote win here by Biden is even larger right. than Barack Obama's was over Mitt Romney. So at what point does this undermine our you heard Governor Larry Hogan? This is not coming mm-hmm. from a member of the media. It's a Republican right. who thinks this is right. undermining um, the look of America to the world.
1: So, Senator Kramer was definitely of the mind that the transition should begin right away, the work of the transition, but was still allowing the this space in the room for President Trump and his lawyers to present their case. And I think as Rudy Giuliani presented that very fact free press conference on Thursday, it's really pushed a lot of these senators and congresspeople to say, look, if you're going to make these you know allegations. You need to produce evidence for them, and you need to also show it in court. And I do think this is a, a fantastic question by Chuck Todd. And Senator Kramer's answer here is uh, is an interesting one, where he he recognizes that leadership is necessary, and that it will be a job of Republicans to step forwards and say, "Hey, that's that's not right." You know, like Biden won fair and square, and we have to recognize that. I don't know how many Republicans will actually do that, but it kind of gives me echoes of what we heard from McCain. You remember in that famous moment during the campaign where one of the rally goers at his event, you know, shouted out or or, no, I think she was asking him a question about Obama being a Muslim. And uh, he said, no, that's that's not the case.
9: I got to ask you a question. I do not uh, believe in I can't trust Obama. I, I have read about him, and he's not, he's not, he's a, um, he's an Arab. He is not.
3: No? Man. No, man. No, ma'am. He's, he's, he's a decent family man, citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with on, on fundamental issues, and that's what this campaign is all about. He's not. Thank you. Thank you. Now, of course, it goes without
1: saying that Arabs can also be decent family men who are citizens, but I think the point he's pushing back on was a lot of misinformation, and that misinformation, you know, wasn't invented in our era. I mean, it happened and was a big issue all the way back in 2008, right? I mean, consider, you know, this other clip where you hear John McCain trying to say that you know, people didn't have to be afraid of a President Obama as president, that they just had, you know, differences, he and Obama.
3: I want to be President of the United States, and obviously I do not want Senator Obama to be. But I have to tell you, I have to tell you, he is a decent person and a person that you do not have to be scared as President of the United States. Now, I I just, now I just, now, now look, I, I, if I didn't think I wouldn't be one heck of a lot better president, I wouldn't be running, okay?
1: Listen to how the audience reacts. I mean, this is this is something that someone like a McCain needed to do serious work in trying to, to combat the misinformation and the, the feelings on the ground. And that was, you know, well before Donald Trump took root as the leader of the Republican Party.
0: Kramer here is the first of many senators who are going to have to really grapple with what their role is going to be in understanding their defense or their non-defense of President Trump to their constituents.
1: One thing I just want to mention that was missing, though, is there was no question about COVID relief, like a COVID relief bill. And we were just talking about that and the need to reach out to Republican senators who are the group in the government right now who are resistant to COVID relief.
0: That's true. But looking ahead, there's a lot of changes and priorities that are going to shift, obviously, with a new administration. And Ron Klain was on this week talking to George Stephanopoulos. And it was a really interesting conversation. Ron Klain is going to be the new chief of staff for President-elect Joe Biden. And George asked a really interesting question about... The role of this new administration in examining the wrongdoings of the Trump administration while also at the same time moving forward with their agenda that's important to them.
8: There's going to be some tension between getting unity, getting things done, working with the Republicans and investigating any wrongdoing that occurred during the Trump administration. Now, the vice president has been reported, has expressed a preference that he doesn't want his presidency consumed by Trump investigations. Uh, that has raised some concerns about among some Democrats, including Congressman Bill Pascrell, who had this to say this week. Failure to hold financial and political wrongdoing accountable in the past has invited greater malfeasance by bad actors. A repeat of those failures in 2021 further emboldens criminality by national leaders and continues America down the path of lawlessness and authoritarianism. There must be accountability. How do you balance moving forward with getting accountability?
10: Well, let's be clear, George, the president elect spoke about this many times during the campaign. And what he made it clear is that Joe Biden is not going to tell the Justice Department who to investigate or who not to investigate. That's what we saw the past four years, the president tampering with the Justice Department, egging on investigations, so on and so forth. He's going to pick an excellent attorney general, an independent Justice Department, and that department will make decisions independently, free of politics, free of political favor in either direction as to how to enforce the laws. That's the way it should be. That's the way it's always been. That's the way it needs to be if we're going to have the kind of rule of law that's so important in our country.
1: What a forceful, forceful answer. And of course, Ron Klain is absolutely right. Indeed, we did hear this answer on the campaign trail. But this is just such a forceful and kind of like proud dissertation of what that that means and why that's important. Between this and the answer that we just heard from Kate Bedingfield, that the Biden transition is not going to pursue legal action, it just kind of like reinforces that Biden is going to try to govern the way that he campaigned and that is kind of not getting into the weeds, not getting into the mud in these sorts of these sorts of topics and carefully, you know, walking that tightrope between different factions whether it's Republicans and Democrats or progressives and moderates. He really seems to be wanting to make this a big tent and make it like he's not tipping his hand one way or another. It'll be I think it it presages not only a very different White House from the one we just saw from Trump, but a very, very unique White House from from ones we've seen in recent times. Makes me kind of interested to see where this is all going to lead.
0: I don't think it's going to be without any mistakes or any errors on their part, because I think there's a lot of special interests to keep in mind, a lot of priorities to keep in mind, but it's ambitious. And I think it's important to make clear that They're going to try to do both, right? Try to have this accountability and also move forward with an agenda for the future. And it makes me think of what we saw, which is kind of very different in terms of political values. But what we heard from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, which I think was State of the Union a week or two ago, where she said that Democrats need to feel a profound change in their lives to kind of really believe in this party. Like this, this, these gradual little steps is not going to be cutting it, and. I think there's something to be said about that, and also people like Ron Klain, who would probably see themselves as more of a moderate, to really make tangible, to make real that they are moving forward with the Biden agenda.
1: Yeah, and kind of in that, that same vein, you know, Rahm Emanuel on the panel of this week spoke of why, you know, the Democrats and, and President-elect Biden seem to be, to the extent possible, not getting up in arms about the conduct of Trump and his failure to concede. Take a listen.
8: And, Rahm, it seems like president-elect Biden has simply made the calculation that he's going to basically, as much as he can, ignore what the president says and just go on doing what he needs to do to the extent he can in the transition.
9: Yeah, I, I think two things, George. Uh, one is I do think he's made a decision uh, a little more, which is to appeal to the Republicans in the country, as you saw with the governor's meeting, and you can see more support out of the governor. So he's going to go around Washington. I think that's a smart strategy. It's also one I would adopt in the governing strategy, because governors like Governor DeWine and Governor Kemp and others are going to have to now realize are we going to get the resources we need not only to balance our budget, but deal with our public health? That is going to be a great way to play, I think, the triangulation between the Senate and the governors and make sure that's just one view on how to do second thing is what well, Ron Kling said I think very, very smart. He's going to say to the Senate Republicans, you have a prerogative in the Senate called to, uh, to confirm our nominees. He's going to align the Senate prerogative up with his self-interest, which is to get the background checks on his nominations to go forward. And to me, that's a smart strategy to say, we, this game is now over. Your interest, nothing gets the senator more excited than the word prerogative you want you want the background material to make sure that the treasury secretary defense secretary uh, attorney general have what they need epa direct that is going to make sure that they start to move and realize that they too need this transition to go uh,
1: and just a quick note you know we apologize for the poor quality of that audio it looks like Rom just didn't have a very strong connection there
0: Yeah, it's just very interesting overall to kind of be thinking about the types of compromises, strategic compromises that the Biden transition team and the Biden administration is going to be considering to keep progress moving forward, to keep kind of their agenda inching forward. And I think it'll be, I think it will frustrate some people. I think it will be painful at times, but it's kind of necessary to have a functioning Congress. I mean, I think part of Biden's appeal was that he, did know Congress so well that he does know Washington and that he's going to get the kind of train back on the tracks, right, and get it to be functional again. And so how and what that looks like, I think is remains to be seen, obviously, but it'll definitely require strategic compromises like Rahm Emanuel here is talking about.
1: Well, and as you mentioned about political capital, Naomi, it's clear that they're not going to burn any bridges and they don't want to use up any of that political capital dealing with the Trump administration or Trump's Trump's current refusal to concede. They're just like this is going to work itself out. We are confident in the process, confident in our, you know, in our election, and Trump is going to do whatever he's going to do, but we are going to focus on on our role of governing and not be distracted. It reminds me actually frankly, a little bit of what we heard from Nancy Pelosi a lot when she would come on and be interviewed, particularly around the time of the impeachment or the russia investigations, and there were lots of questions she had about how she would react to Donald Trump's conduct. Now she would throw in those words those um you know that diction that would kind of like get under the skin of trump or or his his supporters but she often said you know i'm not going to wade into that i'm not going to dignify that with an answer that's not what my focus is my focus is on as she would often say the american people that's a phrase she likes to use a lot the american people and i think the the biden team is trying to do the same and hey as as they discussed on the end of the panel on meet the press you know you could have worse examples to follow than Nancy Pelosi's when it comes to political power. She has literally been in leadership in the House since 2003. Unbelievable. And now she was just elected this week to be Speaker once again. I mean, remember, she was Speaker of the House During George W. Bush's presidency. Yeah.
0: And to kind of close out this segment, there was another clip that we wanted to show from the Kate Bedingfield interview on Fox News Sunday. And in this clip, you'll hear Chris Wallace and his question specifically on... If and when Joe Biden will meet with Mitch McConnell.
1: Okay, Um, the president also president elect and we we showed it in in Jackie's piece met with Nancy Pelosi and uh, Chuck Schumer on Friday. And he talked afterwards about he wants to see a covid relief bill passed by the lame duck Congress in the next couple of weeks. Can't wait till January 20th. Question. When is he going to meet with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell?
7: Well, he's looking forward to doing that when the time is right um obviously you know he and senator mcconnell have had productive working relationship in the past and he looks forward to to meeting with senator mcconnell uh, when that moment when that moment arrives
1: now another i'm trying to get a sense is it president-elect biden who's holding up the meeting or is it mitch mcconnell
7: we strongly hope that senator mcconnell will come to the table i think if you look at uh, where the Democrats have been uh, across the entire course of this year. You know, Democrats passed a bill back in May um, and we've seen uh, uh, we've seen obstruction from Republicans. So obviously, we are very hopeful that Mitch McConnell will come to the table. Uh, it is important. People are expecting it. You know, they voted for in this in this election. They voted for action. They voted for progress. But just to, um, and they just voted to, just to press
1: this, some, would, would, Biden meet, would Biden meet with McConnell right now?
7: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. Once again, this is completely consistent with what all this evidence is laying out, and that is that the Biden transition, Joe Biden himself, wants that conversation with Mitch McConnell to be on his terms and not on the terms of Donald Trump and his refusal to concede his historic history-making refusal to concede the election.
0: So I think in general, what we've seen in the last two weeks is... We're probably going to see moving forward a very strategic decisions by the Biden transition team, how they talk, collaborate, work with Republicans and still try to maintain and control the message. Right. And so I think we're seeing that done fairly well now. We'll see how well and how long they're able to maintain this effort. So that takes us to segment two. So today in coronavirus world, we're going to focus specifically on the vaccines. There's a lot of new news about their effectiveness, their timeline, a lot of kind of what this might mean in the overall COVID response.
1: Yeah, and there was one face that we saw across the shows in lots of different places and ways, and that is Chief Scientific Advisor for Operation Warp Speed, Dr. Monsef Slaoui. Now, Dr. Slowey is considered the coronavirus or, or warp speed czar, the vaccine czar. However, because of some complicated things, where he's he didn't want to give up or sell some stock. Uh, therefore, it, it, and it's stock worth a lot. I should mention this guy's got stock cumulatively, cumulatively that is worth twenty-two million, twenty-three million, just at two companies that are working on vaccines which is crazy because of that he's a contractor and therefore he's an advisor and not kind of the head of this thing. But he was everywhere and he was talking about the excitement of these two new vaccines that we have learned are probably equally efficacious and uh, at a 94, 95% efficacy rate and effectiveness rate. The Pfizer vaccine we learned on Friday was submitted to the FDA for emergency Use approval. The FDA is going to look at that and determine whether it is approved after an independent review board takes a look at it. I think, I believe it's on December 10th, is when they meet.
0: Yeah, so Jake Tapper, in this interview with Dr. Slawi, raised a really important point that I think is on a lot of people's minds, and not just vaccine skeptics, you know, kind of the overall anti vaxxers, but just people who are very skeptical of the Trump People who believe in science but don't believe in the Trump administration are also skeptical of the coronavirus vaccine and are concerned about its safety. And so Jake Tapper kind of very carefully brings this up to Dr. Slowy, And we thought Dr. Slaoui had a really compelling answer.
2: These vaccines have moved significantly more quickly than other modern vaccines development and approval. It's a process that usually takes years. It's going to be accomplished in just 10 months. How confident are you that there will not be any significant adverse side effects with these vaccines? What kind of reassurance can you provide?
3: Yes. So the way we have accelerated was to first capitalize on at least 10 years of research uh, around what's called platform technologies, which is like almost like a cassette player in which you can fit different cassettes for different musics. Different cassettes would be different vaccines in this case, the COVID-19 vaccine. So all the upstream part of the discovery that usually takes five, six years have been done in two months, literally. Then we run much, much larger clinical trials than required by the FDA for an approval. So our level of understanding on a broad population basis uh, of the short-term safety of the vaccines is actually very good, better than what we usually have. What we are lacking is the long-term safety, just because it's a fact. We can't follow up for too long on these vaccines while one to two thousand people die every day. That's the risk we know. Now, very importantly, two things. One, the FDA has shown that for hundreds of thousands of individuals that have participated to clinical trials for vaccine over the last 40 years, 90 to 95 percent of all serious adverse events happen within 40 days from completing immunization. That's the reason the FDA said we need 60 days after completing immunization of safety observation before you can file. We know that for the, the vaccines that we are being filed, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine, there are no significant serious adverse events in that period of time.
1: This is such a compelling answer, and we just love it when someone goes on and, and explains the, the details in this very easy to understand way. And to hear Slowey describe it and answer the charge that, hey, these things were developed so fast, so they can't be safe, right? They're, they're cutting corners left and right. What a strong answer to say, actually, we're kind of standing on the shoulders of 10 years of research around this, this pl- these uh, platform technologies to make this vaccine. So those, you know, it's not like, you know, this was cooked up from nothing there was a lot a lot a lot that came before it lots of great data and information here to you know set people's minds at ease about the safety of this vaccine and then finally he has this you know the basic argument of here's why we had to do this faster and that is because we have a thousand to 2000 people who are dying every day that is a risk that we know he says that's the risk we know and this unknown risk of these long-term vaccine safety, you know, issues they do not indicate, you know, 1000 to 2000 people dying a day, right? Like th- there's no evidence that that's going to be the result of these vaccines, so we really have to weigh our options here and the vaccines are super super safe so far.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I hope Dr. Slawy isn't the only one doing this messaging. I hope that this is kind of reinforced Like the average American doesn't need to know how vaccine development works. And the average American doesn't need to know kind of like the ins and out of the pharma development world. Like that is not something like brain space, brain real estate (laughs) that should be expected. And so it's up to these public health leaders to make the case, to make the messaging prevalent, persuasive, so people trust the vaccine and this is just the start. I hope it's not the end of it. But we thought it was compelling. We thought it worked. And we hope to see more of it.
1: Absolutely, Naomi. I totally, totally agree. I just feel like I could see someone taking this answer and turning it into like a quick retort when someone says, oh, I'm not going to take that vaccine. They did it way too fast. And it's like, actually, they've been working on the, you know, the technology around it for 10 years. It's like, oh, really? Yeah, actually. Oh, okay. You know, like,
0: yeah, I mean, I, It's important for us to have it as kind of counter facts when someone in your life is skeptical of the vaccine, but it shouldn't just be coming from us, from from our peers, as as much as they're convincing. It needs to be reinforced by public health professionals.
1: But with all the excitement of the vaccine, there was some... uh... Some real talk? Uh, Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Some real talk from Scott Gottlieb, who is back after a week of hiatus because the show was not broadcast, not because Scott Gottlieb didn't show up. It's not his fault.
0: For all we know, Dr. Gottlieb was actually in the CBS News studio, (laughs) devastated that there was no Face the Nation.
1: He was here and he sits on the board of Pfizer, which developed the, the vaccine that was submitted for approval on Friday. And he talked about what the expectations might be moving forward. Uh,
5: let's start on that vaccine. Uh, you heard uh, Dr. Fauci say life probably won't go back to normal in May, but he did seem to agree with the timeline that if around that time frame, that's when the vaccine will be widely available. Uh, what do you know about that distribution plan?
6: Well, look, the supply is going to be limited in 2020. As we get into 2021, there'll be much more supply. And I think by the second quarter of 2021, maybe into the third quarter, we'll have a vaccine that hopefully will be licensed for general use if everything goes well and the data continues to support the safety and effectiveness of that vaccine. And we'll be able to vaccinate the public or a good portion of the public heading into the fall of 2021.
5: Just to clarify your timeline, when you're talking about second or third quarter, you're saying it's really not until... April, May, June, maybe later, that your average healthy person can go get a shot in the arm, correct?
6: I think that's that's probably right. The emergency use authorization will be for a limited population this winter. And what will happen is the the companies are likely to file amendments to expand the Eligible um, population as supply expands. So think of the initial population, maybe being elderly people who are in institutional settings like nursing homes or long-term care facilities. Then you expand it, maybe to elderly people who might be living at home, and then you start expanding it down the age cohorts. So you basically walk it down the risk-benefit continuum. But the point at which it's going to be broadly licensed for that healthy 30-year-old, that's probably second quarter of 2021, maybe early third quarter. If things go well, but that's okay because we're likely to have a quiescent spring and summer because we're going to be getting off a very dense epidemic this winter. And what you really want is a vaccine broadly available in time for the fall COVID season. Also remember, we don't need to vaccinate 70 percent of the public because by the time we get through this winter, probably 30 percent of the public will have had COVID. So
0: leave it to Dr. Gottlieb to bring us the real talk, to kind of bring us down to reality in a very constructive way, I guess I would say. Dr. Salawi was on the show kind of really talking about how the vaccine's almost ready to go. They're hoping to have it in people's arms before the end of the year, essentially. And Dr. Gottlieb here makes the counterpoint that there isn't going to be mass availability for the vaccine for everyone and that there's going to be a strategic, there'll be a strategic expansion of who and how people are eligible for the vaccine.
1: Yeah. And the other part we heard just at the end there where he was talking about how We don't necessarily have to vaccinate 70% of the population because we ideally for herd immunity, which means that, well, let's just define that term, right? Herd immunity means that if somebody gets COVID within the population of the United States, that COVID will not be able to be transmitted enough to cause an outbreak because all the people surrounding the person with it probably have either been vaccinated or have had COVID already. And therefore, it just kind of gets snuffed out. It's like a flame that gets snuffed out, a little spark that gets snuffed out. And so for that herd immunity to take place, traditionally, you would say that 70% of the population needs to no longer be able to get COVID. And he's saying you don't need that 70% to be vaccinated because by that time, 30%, unfortunately, will have already had COVID. So you only need the additional... Forty percent.
0: So another component of the vaccinations is how and where, specifically where we get those vaccinations. On Face the Nation, the CEO of CVS Pharmacy was on. His name is Larry Merlo, and he was talking to Margaret Brennan about kind of the private pharmaceutical retailer like CVS, their anticipated role in administering these vaccines. Take a listen to this part of the interview where he explains the early conversations that CVS Pharmacy is having with the Biden transition team.
5: Have you briefed the incoming Biden administration on the plans that you know so far? And I understand you're saying you're still waiting on a lot of this information yourself. But what kind of contact have you had?
10: yeah we have reached out to the uh, to the biden covid uh, task force we've talked about uh, the role that we have been playing in fighting the virus uh, the role that we played in 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 testing uh, all across the uh, the country the fact that we've now tested more than 7 million americans for uh, for covid uh, the plans that we have to play an important role uh, in administering the vaccine and the fact that you know we have 10,000 pharmacies about mm-hmm. 70% of the US population lives within uh, a few miles of a CVS pharmacy but you know equally important we have uh, built mobile kiosks where with testing we have gone into historically underserved communities to you know bring access to covid testing we'll do the same thing with a
1: vaccine
0: so clearly CVS pharmacy and I'm sure Rite Aid and Walgreens and all the others all want to have a role in administering this vaccine You know, obviously there's a lot of money to be made, but I thought it was really interesting. He's talking about how they're going to build on the success that they've had in terms of testing to also be able to offer the vaccine as well. Later in the interview, or kind of maybe a question or two later, Margaret Brennan raises the point that Vice President-elect Biden seems to be a little bit skeptical on leaning too hard on private retailers, grocers, pharmacies, you know, that they... if if the vaccine is solely administered through private companies, that it will leave out too many rural and poor communities, as opposed to kind of like public health agencies and public health departments. And Merlot kind of reemphasizes what he mentions here, that 70% of the U.S. population really lives within just a few miles of a CVS and that their extensive coverage really makes the claim that it they're not... They're not Whole Foods, right, where they only exist in like the rich neighborhoods in in just cities that they really have the extensive coverage. So um, I would imagine that CVS and, and like I said, the other pharmacy retailers are going to play another huge role in this next phase.
1: But of course, a lot of this distribution, whether it's through CVS or any other means, could be put at risk. Could be compromised, could be not at 100 percent because of this delay in the transition, which was discussed during the conversation on this week with incoming White House chief of staff to Joe Biden, Ron Klain.
8: You talked about vaccine distribution. I talked to General Periner from Operation Warp Speed on Friday. He said the lack of, of, of communication between his team and the transition isn't delaying distribution at all. Do you buy that?
10: Well, obviously, it doesn't delay distribution while Donald Trump's in charge. But on January 20th, Joe Biden will be in charge. And if there isn't a seamless flow of information now so that we know what we're getting ourselves into, so we know what plans they've made, so we know what gaps there are in the plans, then I do think there's risk that that distribution uh, has gaps and lapses starting on January 20th. You know, I'm sorry, but while I respect many people involved in this effort on the Trump side in terms of the vaccine distribution effort. The fact of the matter is the Trump administration has a history of failure in dealing with the COVID crisis, including a dr- dramatic and drastic failure on the testing uh, challenge. And so I think just, uh, you know, the, the Trump administration positions, we're just supposed to trust them that this is all going to work out. I think that's a hard sell to the American people.
1: This is such a powerful point because literally we heard this week. From Monsef Slaoui, the head of the Warp Speed program, that we could expect as many as 20 million Americans to receive the vaccine in the month of December, next month. And then another 30 million in January and another 30 million in February. That sounds very promising, very exciting. He said literally, you know, the day after they get word that the vaccine is approved by the FDA, they are being put on trucks, they are being sent out so that the next day people can get them. However, think about those numbers. 20 million people in the month of December, month when people are going to be away for like the last week during a holiday, a month where you're not going to have the vaccine approved until December 11th, December 12th. 20 million people When CVS, which remember CVS is all over the freaking place as they were just arguing for the entire length of this pandemic, which seems like it's many years now, but it's only many months, has only done 7 million coronavirus tests. 7 million in months. And suddenly we're gonna get 20 million vaccines in people in like less than 20 days? That's hard to believe. And I appreciate the skepticism from Ron Klein. I think we would all love for these 20 million numbers to be real. But I'm highly, highly skeptical of it. And uh, even though Jake Tapper did what I thought was the best job in interviewing Moncef Slaoui, I think the one area he missed was this question of, really? Like 20 million? Really? Are you really going to do it? Are you really ready? Well,
0: especially also considering what we heard from Gottlieb saying there wasn't going to be that many in 2020. Yeah. yeah. Can I also just appreciate the tone of Ron Klain? Like, we've had so many bizarro chief of staffs these last four years. It's just so refreshing to hear someone who gives a real answer, gives us a real idea of what their priorities are, and acknowledges potential challenges, but kind of still remains steady. and fir- It's just like, it's <laughs> just already reassuring. And so it, it's surprising to me how different he sounds compared to Mulvaney or Mark Meadows.
1: Well, and I agree with that. I think what I'm curious of is he's been on basically every week since he was named. I think, I think this is only the second time, I think time, it's the right? second week. But yeah. I'm just, I'm wondering, is that trend going to continue? It looks like it probably will through the end of the transition period and into the presidency. And then how frequently is he going to appear on the Sunday show? Oh,
0: yeah. I don't think he'll probably be on as frequently once.
1: But I don't know. You just never know who... Who they send out. Who they send out. And Yeah.
0: Well, that takes us to show rankings. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious from a lot of our comments and focus. We thought that top of the rankings for sure was Face the Nation. There was just a lot of great bookings and really solid conversations.
1: And I would say number two, State of the Union. There was a great interview that Jake Tapper had with Monsef Slowey. I literally learned a lot from that interview. And Yeah, largely that was... Obviously, I was learning from Slawi, but it was prompted by these questions. Other hosts had him on, and nobody talked or or asked those sorts of questions. So that's number two.
0: Yeah, I think number three would say meet the press. Mm -hmm. Chuck Todd also, similarly, I think to Jake Tapper used his time well in his interviews. And then that-
1: The data download. The data
0: download, the county by county, I thought was really worthwhile. And just, I think, a real demonstration of their commitment to this segment and going back to it one more time. I think they'll probably go back to it again as demographics continue to change in these communities. And so just really well done.
1: And I think he presented the issue of President Trump refusing to concede in the opening of his show in a really- Probably the best way of any of the shows, without going over the top, but also underscoring how unprecedented this is.
0: Chuck loves those timeline explainers.
1: Yes. Number four is this week.
0: Yeah, so this week the panel did include the Rom and Christie show, but no, that's not there's no but it did include Rom and Christie. Chris Christie was a jerk. Chris Christie made news this week, but he was still a jerk on this week, so I didn't really want to focus on it too much. But there was also some other worthwhile interviews earlier. So we thought, you know, I think four seemed pretty fair.
1: And then five, Fox News Sunday. I just want to make a note. You know, we didn't get to go deep into it due to the topics we chose to cover today. But Chris Wallace had an interesting strategy he took to the show. It seemed to be at almost every turn, he would ask some bona fide expert to answer kind of baseless or like... Questionable conservative media talking point sort of issues and questions. Like, for example, he asked Inglesby, who is an expert on the coronavirus, about Scott Atlas and whether he should be listened to. And of course, it was, you know, Atlas was roundly dismissed as he should be as not being an expert on this topic. But Chris Wallace's strategy was to provide that devil's advocate position and Invite his experts to kind of like knock it down and answer it and almost fact check it in a meaningful way So interesting technique and we'll see if he continues employing it. I think it it can be useful in trying to Invite your audience to learn the real facts behind some of these issues without sounding yourself like you are against them
0: That's it and this week our dialogue challenge for you all would be
1: and this is a thanksgiving week do you have a dialogue? Well, I, I'm just thinking back. I think every Thanksgiving, we encourage people to have like meaningful political dialogue at the table, even though everyone says not to do it. We encourage you.
0: I mean, I guess I would make it a little bit COVID style. And, oh, yes. And really thinking about the people that you do feel safe to sit down with and maybe giving a bit of appreciation that you're all staying safe together and sharing tips and strategies with each other about how you plan on staying safe these next couple months.
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's so interesting. We've heard so many of these experts say don't don't see people for Thanksgiving, sit this one out, don't do Thanksgiving sort of thing. And I almost wonder if an opposite approach would have been more effective in telling people, sure, travel, go see people, avoid crowds, but when you do, please, please, please sit outside, sit on the porch, you know what I mean? Sleep in a different area. You know what I mean? Like if you if you told people do what you're gonna do, it could be dangerous, but if you're gonna do it like just focusing on those mitigation measures, because I think a lot of people are going to like just say to hell with it and not not pay attention.
0: I disagree. I think (laughs) I think there's a couple things. One, we are in a place where it's finally temperate enough to hang out outside. But I think that's the opposite in a lot of places across the country. I would say two, the public health messaging. I mean, I guess it depends where this public health messaging would be coming from from the federal government. It's been a complete shit show. And so I think at this point, when it's the virus is raging so fiercely across the country, it's so important to reinforce the safest, the safest measures that will keep us all alive. And then lastly, if they were going to give mitigation efforts, I think they should have done it like Nancy Pelosi style, like, oh, okay, you want to meet with people? These are all the 15 things you should do to meet with someone and to do it safely. And then maybe people would be like, oh, maybe it's not worth it.
1: I think those are all good points
0: sounds good stay safe everyone we have a few more weeks a few more months left in this kind of very scary phase of COVID and we hope everyone stay safe this holiday week
1: and you're always welcome to start a dialogue with us even during the holidays you can email us at podcast at polylog.com you can tweet at me at beastitled on Twitter
0: and you can tweet at me at on Twitter at Soto Naomi underscore and you can always tweet at the show at polylogcast
1: thanks everyone and we will talk with you next week bye bye